from Job 11 through 14 for us tonight. Thanks, man. Yeah, if you got a Bible, uh, please open it up to Job chapter 11. Uh, Job, if you're new to the Bible, is kind of towards the beginning. It's after Nehemiah and Esther and right before Psalms. There's a Bible under your chair. If you don't have one, you can keep that one. But we're going to be in Job. And uh, yes, dauntingly, we are going to go Job 11 through 14. Okay, don't panic. I think it'll be okay. Uh, But we are in a uh, five-week series in the book of Job. Uh, The reason that we are going through this is not because I went to our elder team and said, hey, I really want to depress everybody. Uh, I was thinking Job would be the great solution to that. That's not at all why we're doing that. I think Oregon weather does a good enough job of that, which we had sunshine this weekend. That was great. Um, But we are in this book because, uh, let's just be honest, suffering uh, touches all of us. You know, it just, it affects us all in different ways. And, and like we've said, maybe you're in a season of life right now where everything just seems to be going the way that you want it to be going. And so when you approach the topic of suffering, uh, you're approaching it more as a philosopher, you know, uh, you know, why suffering in the world and that sort of thing. Uh, maybe you just came out of a time of suffering and so you're just trying to process, you know, what happened and why that happened that way. You know, it was difficult. Or maybe you're in the midst of it right now and you're just kind of disoriented by it. And what I want us all to see is that in the midst of suffering or, or whether we're just talking about it because we know it might come to us again someday, uh, we all just try to make sense of it. We're in the middle of it or, or on the outside looking in, we all try to make sense of our suffering. We all try to find, if you will, true north. We all try to figure out, you know, what we're going to look to to kind of draw hope from, because we're going to look somewhere. We're going we're to scratch at it, if you will. I don't know if you've heard, uh, the, it's, I think it's a pretty famous story. There was once uh, two prisoners, and these guys were both um, placed into a prison, and right before they went into the prison, one man was told that his wife and his kids were alive and well, and they'd be waiting for him. The other prisoner found out that his wife and his kids had died. And so these two men went into this prison, and for the first couple of years of imprisonment, the the man who found out that he had lost his family kind of just wasted away. He kind of felt hopeless and and, and weak, and he would just curl up, and, and after a few years, he actually passed away. But the other man who found out that his wife and his kids would be waiting for him when he got out, walked out a free man after 10 years. During all those difficult moments of wondering what life could look like again, he found strength through weakness. He was able to endure. The point of the story is that these two men, they had the same exact circumstances, but they responded completely differently. Because while they experienced the same reality, these men had their minds set on different futures. It was their hope that determined how they handled their present. And so the chapters that we are in tonight in Job, I think help us work through that same idea. That that when we are trying to understand and make sense of our suffering, we attach our hope to something. We trust and we hope in something just to kind of make sense of everything. We are all hope-shaped creatures, if you will. Whatever you draw from, though, will allow you, I think, to suffer well, or if that thing crumbles that you're hoping in, it can crush you in the process. And so we're only going to take, again, five weeks in the book of Job. We're kind of looking at this as as an overarching sort of storyline. And if you're unfamiliar with the book of Job, or maybe you're very familiar with it, I'm not sure, uh, in the middle, from basically chapters 4 through almost 37 around there, there's all this dialogue between Job and his friends, okay? And it can get kind of confusing. And he's got these friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu. And so I'm just going to tell you right now, if you're expecting a baby boy anytime soon, the book of Job is a great place to go for baby names, right? This, these, are, these are great names. We need to resurrect these names. But he's got these four friends, okay? And basically in the course of all their dialogue, they're kind of throwing around this major question. And it's this question that kind of helps them cling to hope in the midst of suffering. 
And this is the question. Can the righteous suffer? Can good people, can the righteous suffer in life? And it's actually the answer to that question that creates the system that Job's friends view the world through and that they view Job's suffering through. It creates a system that that his friends use to make sense of the world. And so tonight, as we consider what hope we have in suffering, uh, I want us just to see two things. One, I want us to look at the systems that we hope in, the systems that we hope in. And secondly, I want us to see the hope that we have when the system falls apart. So the, 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 the systems that we hope in and then the hope that we have when the system fails, when it falls apart. So first we see the systems that we, we hope in, okay? And this starts in chapter 11. Zophar and his friends, they have a certain view of the world, and this is their view. If you suffer, it's because you've screwed up. It's because that you've done something wrong. And so last week we looked at at chapter 3 where we saw this voice of suffering that pours out of the life of Job, okay? And right before that, Job had just lost his his 10 kids. He had lost all of his possessions, his his wealth. Uh, His wife had begun to turn on him, all these different things. And his friends show up and they, they mourn, they weep, they grieve with Job. It's quiet for seven days. No one says anything. Job finally opens his mouth and they're expecting because of the system that they view the world through, that Job is now going to reveal this great sin that he's committed as to why this horrible tragedy has fallen upon him. And he opens his mouth and he confesses nothing. What he does is he curses his own birth. This is the view that his friends have. And if you were to ask them, you know, where does that come from? They would probably just say to you, well, it's common sense. That's the the wisdom of the world. That's just how the world works. And so Eliphaz is kind of the first friend that responds to Job. And in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, um, Eliphaz says to him, Remember who that was innocent ever perished. Basically, he's saying, Job, bad things don't happen to good people. Okay? We all know this. So if, if you're suffering, it's because you've done something wrong. Job, you, you just need to own it. And and Zophar here in chapter 11, he kind of picks up that baton again, and he's beginning to use that same sort of thought. And in verses 1 through 6, he makes this great accusation against Job. And I'm not going to be able to read all of this, but in verses 1 through 5, you see him take up this baton and, and accuse Job of committing some sort of secret sin that he's just unwilling to confess. And Zophar here is saying, I can't listen to you talk anymore, Job. Job keeps claiming that he's innocent. In Zophar's speech, he would say, you're going on and on and and, and talking about stupid things. And as far as this friend of his, Zophar, is concerned, Job is actually mocking God by maintaining his innocence, by not confessing some sort of wrong that he's done. In, In Zophar's view, Job is mocking God. And so Zophar now thinks and is wishing that that God would just sort of like let Job have it, if you will. And he goes so far as to say in verse 6 at the end, he says, Now then, that God exacts of you less, know then, sorry, that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. I mean, think about that. Talk about like a punch in the face from a friend. I mean, think about everything that Job has lost. He's lost his dignity. He's lost his kids. He's lost his wealth. He's lost his health. He's lost his reputation. He's pretty much lost his wife. He feels very alone. He doesn't have many friends. And to make everything even worse, Job's beginning to feel like he lost God. And here his friend is looking at him and saying, you actually deserve worse than all that. He says this, because he thinks 
that he has some sort of inside information about Job and, and some sort of wisdom that he's able to speak for God. But then in verse 7, he, he kind of tries to get very like religious on Job. And he says something, he begins to use these words that might have been like a hymn in this day. And he says, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do deeper than Sheol, which is the place of the dead? What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And he goes on, if he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men when he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. And uh, if you're trying to figure out what the last verse means, uh, that is an insult in the ancient Near East. Okay, that's not a compliment. Probably not one you're going to use this week, though. But he breaks off into this hymn, and it sounds legit. And that's because, in a lot of ways, it is. He's saying basically these things that you and I often say. We would say, like, who can understand God? His ways are higher than our ways. Who can measure his wisdom? What he's saying to Job, he's challenging Job, and he's like, do you have some sort of wisdom that we don't have about God? So they're accusing Job of saying, I've figured God out, everybody. The system you've believed in, it's broken. I understand all things now. And so he's confronting Job with this sort of challenge. So he, he accuses Job of having some secret sin. He says, who are you, Job, to say you know things that we don't know? And then at the end, in verses 13 through 20, he offers this sort of solution, okay? He says, if you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him, referring to God. If iniquity or sin is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice Dwell in your tents, surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And he goes on. Basically, he's saying to Job here, Job, man, if you would just confess your sin, everything will be okay again. You'll get everything back. Life will be awesome again. Just confess your sin and it'll all be restored. But if not, Job, then there is absolutely no hope for you. That's how he ends. And verse 20 says, if not, you should just die. See, Job's outward situation tells Zophar and all of his friends everything that they need to know about Job's heart. Or so that's, that's what they think. Okay. And Job, in, verse, in chapters 12 and, and 13, he basically takes up you know, his discourse now and tries to poke holes. This, again, is, is the way his friends view the world. This is the system through which they try to understand things and make sense of things and hope in things. And so, basically, their hope in life is that if I just do good things, then I won't suffer. So my hope is that I do good things and don't do bad things. Okay? That is what they're hoping in. And Job says, you've got it all wrong. Your system is broken. It's broken. I mean, he, he attacks the accusation that his friend gives and makes to him. That the reason you're suffering is because you've sinned. He, basically, his friend is saying, God has done this to you and he should actually do worse. Job takes up his discourse in, in verses 9, says, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? So Job says to his friend, I actually agree with you. I think this, this, in my view, has come from the hand of God. This has happened to me because of God. That's what Job clearly believes. You see it in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, really the entire book. Job thinks that God has allowed this to happen to him. Okay? He would agree with Zophar, but he doesn't agree for the same reasons that his friends do. His friends think it's because of a sin that he's committed, right? That, that's what they think. His friends hold to a system of the world that says the righteous do not suffer. Bad things do not happen to good people. Job says, yes, I believe that this has come from the hand of God, but I don't know why. I don't understand. He says the righteous can and do suffer. And he proves his point even further. If you look in chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, this is what he, 
he says, I'll just, I'll just read for you verse 6, he says, the tents of robbers are at peace and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. Basically, he's saying, if the righteous don't suffer, then it's the wicked who should. So why is it that I look at the world and wicked people are prospering? And me, I know myself, and, and I'm righteous, and, and I'm not. So that alone, my friends, he's saying to them, breaks apart your little system. So you see, Job is a book in the Bible that sort of unlocks, if you will, this, this new door through which we can see the world that, yes, actually, the righteous do suffer. Good people do suffer. And then his challenge that he aims at Job, that Job has some sort of secret wisdom, Job actually attacks that. He pokes holes in that. You see it in verse 2, and he does it through sarcasm, because what does he say? He says, no doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. Basically, he looks at his friends, and he's like, oh yeah, you guys have all the wisdom in the world. It'll be a really sad day when you die, because there'll be no wisdom left in the world at all. You hold it all. And so sarcasm, I guess, can work, you know. It can be a, a great thing, a godly thing, apparently. Right, so he, he challenges Zophar, and he says, basically, by you saying that you can't understand God, you in that moment, Zophar, are saying that you do. You, you're, you're guilty of your own statement. And then the, the solution that, that Zophar actually gives to Job Job addresses, but it's not until a little bit later here. So there's, there's two things here that Zophar gets wrong that we need to see. First, that Job has no secret sins in his life which he needs to repent of. So, so Zophar's counsel to him is just irrelevant to Job. It doesn't make any sense, okay? The second thing, which is actually way more serious is that the motivation that Zophar gives to Job for repentance, for saying you should confess your sin, the motivation that he gives him is the exact motivation that Satan accused Job of in the beginning. In the beginning, Satan said to God, Job just likes you for your stuff. You take the stuff away, Job won't love you anymore. That didn't happen. But here Zophar is saying, hey, just confess your sins and you'll get your stuff back. That's his whole motivating factor for Job. You want your life to be great again, just confess your sin. So in, if Job repents in order to regain everything that he lost, then he would actually prove Satan right from the first chapter. So his friends, they have a system that we see here that they have hoped in. They have a system that has been their true north. And every experience of their life and of Job's life and everybody else's life has to fit into that framework. That's how they see this. And let's, let's be honest. We, in our lives, we deploy systems as well. We, we look to things, and when those things break, we, we have a hard time. We don't know what to do with ourselves. Just on like a very simple level, when I was uh, dating my wife, okay, I wasn't, it was before we were married, she was my wife then, my girlfriend Liz, now my wife, right? From the very beginning, I would go and I would buy her flowers, okay? I'm not talking like cheap grocery store flowers. I would go to an actual florist. They would make the arrangements for me. I would have them delivered by her friends to her apartment or her work or whatever. And at least every three weeks to four weeks, I would buy her flowers, okay? She liked it. I gave it to her. She felt loved by me. And so my system I created was if I want Liz to know I love her, I buy her flowers. She gets flowers. She knows I love her. Everything's great. Okay? We got married. I bought her flowers. We now share a bank account. She looked at how much I was spending on flowers and said, Josh, if you love me, you will not buy me flowers ever again. Okay? <laughs> my wife is a very frugal woman, and that's, that's good for me. Okay? But I learned very quickly, this system does not work anymore. If I can't buy her flowers, I'm being serious. I was like, how do I show my wife that I love her? My system broke, right? You do this with other things, maybe. We get more serious, too. I mean, just your own relationship with God. 
I mean, maybe you're a type of person, you're like, I love being in nature, that really, it's where I really connect with God. And so if you go to the ocean or you see a beautiful starry night sky, you feel the intimacy of God or the grandeur of God, and, and I'm with you, right? That's amazing. Or maybe you've read your Bible a certain way and you've really experienced God through that or you've prayed in a certain way or for a certain length of time, but then something happens, you go to the ocean one day and the pizzazz is gone. You read your Bible the way you always have and it doesn't feel like you're connecting with God again. What happens? Your system breaks. You're like, I don't understand. If I input X, I get out Y. We create systems all the time and we we create systems in the midst of our suffering to make sense of it. That's what we do. One of those systems could be just life is a crapshoot. You just get dealt bad hands sometimes. Our family's had a terrible string of, of health the, uh, in the month of January. It's well documented by now. I took Eden, Eden into the doctor a couple weeks ago. She was had like this, you know, high fever, ear infection. She's really lethargic and all this stuff. Her doctor says to me, I told him about all the health problems we've had this month. He looks at me and he's like, man, you guys, you just had a string of bad luck. And I didn't say anything to him. I was like, yeah, you know, whatever. But that, that I knew right then that's his system with which he used the world. Oh man, it's just a, just a crapshoot. I'm sorry, you got dealt a bad hand. And so sometimes when that happens, uh, maybe if you're a Christian and that's kind of your view of suffering, God seems really distant all the time. And so you're like, I just gotta man up, I just gotta get through it, someday he'll come back for me, or he'll care for me someday. But right now I gotta, I gotta care for myself. Or you might have a system like Zophar, his approach, it says, if you're suffering, if you're going through something hard, that's obviously because you must have done something wrong. And let's be real, that, that can be really true. I mean, if, if you have an affair on your, your wife or your husband and you lose your family because of that, that, that's really normal to look at that and go, oh yeah, that's a result of, of something that you did. But we often take that system and we apply it into scenarios and situations that we aren't meant to apply those sort of things. And if that's our system, we just look at things that happen, suffering that we go through, and we say, well, you know what, I just need to work harder. I just need to to plan better and I'm never gonna make that mistake again. I will avoid this in the future. I'll change my habits. Another system might just be, you, you view God as this very cruel God, right? Therefore, you hate him. You're like, man, he must take pleasure over my suffering. He, he could stop it, and he doesn't. Therefore, he's cruel, and he's not worth pursuing in my life. Or your system might be God is a bright and warm and, and teddy bear figure who's your ideal picture of, of kindness and your definition of love. And so in the midst of your suffering, he's a God who, who weeps with you, and he's just a shoulder for you to cry on, but he's not powerful to do anything. But at least he's there for you. These are are systems that we deploy on ourselves and on other people in the middle of our suffering. Uh, I remember the first time I at least felt like I learned what death was. I was in fourth grade and my uh, grandmother died. And I remember my um, two sisters took it really hard. And I remember being a fourth grade boy and wondering if something was wrong with me because I just, I couldn't cry. It just didn't make sense to me. It wasn't real. I couldn't process death. And I vividly remember two weeks later, laying in my bed and holding on to this stuffed animal parrot that I had. And I just started bawling because the penny dropped. And I realized what death was. It meant my grandmother was gone. But I created a system in that moment. I learned a new system, and that is that when you get older like grandma, you die. But then my uh, junior year of high school came. And uh, uh, one of my really good friends, uh, her name was Nikki Carney. Uh, She was driving a vehicle, and she ran a stop sign, and she was T-boned by a guy going 55 and she was launched out of her windshield into a field and she died. And I had already abandoned God the year before that 
uh, because I'd created another system in my, my life that said, um, people have been telling me my whole life, if you're a Christian, you're going to have the greatest joy, the most happiness. And I, like Job, looked at the wicked and said, oh, why are they having such a great time then? Why are they prospering? So, so I created that system. And now in this moment, all of a sudden, the system I had made as a fourth grader broke down. I thought only grandmas and grandpas were supposed to die. And, and of course, at that age in high school, I mean, I understood at that point, like, you could die. But then I experienced in that moment that it wasn't true. My system broke down. And I felt like I'd been thrown off the end of a pier at night into an ocean. And I was just trying to figure out where north was. See, uh, this book of Job, it helps us, it helps us to consider very carefully the systems that we've created in life and how we think of not only our suffering, but how we think of other people's suffering. So uh, when someone else's world falls apart, it's hard to know what to do and what to say, isn't it? Some of us don't do or say anything. Some of us rush in and, and we just try to fix the problem. Some of us try to offer well-meaning platitudes that just end up bringing hollow in people's lives. Some of us try to explain or interpret events for that person. Most of us mean well, even if it doesn't come across that way. But even harder than knowing what to do and what to say is honestly just knowing what to think. Like, what do we think about all this? We think, did this person bring this on themselves? Is it their own fault? Is God trying to get their attention? I mean, do they deserve this or are they a victim of some injustice? If they're a victim, did they do something to attract this attention or did they do something to invite this sort of attention? I think there's this subtle temptation to look down on someone else in the midst of their suffering. And that's what Job points out here in verse 5 of chapter 12. In his response, he says, In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. See, Job says that we are tempted when we are at ease to look at someone's outward situation and then draw conclusions based on that about the condition of their heart. We think we know what's going on inside of them because of what's going on around them and what's happening to these people. This is what Job's friends are doing. They're saying, I see this, therefore that means this. I mean, I mean how often are we doing this though, right? I mean, really, how often do we do that? I mean, maybe you're not doing this with illness or some sort of accident, so if somebody gets cancer, you don't say, you don't condemn them. Right, like we're not that, I mean, we're, we're smarter than that at least, right? But when someone's business falls apart, or, or when someone's kids are constantly in trouble, when uh, someone's marriage begins to fail, well, what kind of conclusions do we draw in that moment? When, when, when we see tragedies from afar, or even on a massive scale, when we look at things from afar, things that we see in the news, what, what conclusions am I drawing in my heart when I read an article about Syrian refugees? Or when I see another police shooting? Or when I hear about some natural disaster that's happening in the world? Well, what, what's going on in my heart when that happens? How am I processing that? Am I, who is at ease, like Job says, am I showing contempt for other people's misfortune? Am I honestly just a little bit eager to mix in a little condemnation with my compassion? I think the reason we can sometimes do this is because we feel some sort of need in life to explain tragedy. We need to find someone to blame when things just don't go right. We need to ask ourselves, why? 
I mean, does that come from a place of compassion or does it come from a place of just wanting to be in control? Worse yet, if we aren't careful, we may do what Job says his friends are doing in chapter 13, verses 7 through 8. He says, will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Basically, he looks at his friends and he says, you guys aren't just wrongly accusing me. You're not just wrongly assessing the situation. You're taking the place of God in my life. You think you're sitting on the throne now. So, so what should we do? Well, I think it would be wise for us to maybe consider doing what the friends do in chapter two. They, they show up. They grieve with Job. They mourn with Job. They weep with Job. They're present with Job, and they're quiet with Job. I mean, look in, in verse 4 of chapter 13, Job says, As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. He says, You're terrible doctors. Okay? Your words have not healed me like you thought they would. Thanks, but no thanks. He says, If only you would act like you did at first, which was what? He says in verse 5 of chapter 13, Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. So like if you just be quiet, you'd be really wise. You know that, right? So you see, when other people suffer, we, we don't need to impose our systems upon them. That, that is a shallow hope, especially if that system falls apart. And we're set on it that we can't look past the system we've created to see that the system is broken. And so we see that shutting up, honestly, and just being present with that person is a very Christian and Jesus-like response. But I think there's more we can do, and, and we'll see that here when we look at the hope that we actually have when the system fails. Because when you, when you look at what's happening here in the life of Job, when the system fails, when it breaks, when, when his world is kind of falling apart and he's trying to make sense of it, what's happening to Job? Job is absolutely terrified. He's terrified. And look, in verse 20 of chapter 13, he turns from talking to his friends and he begins to talk to God. And he says, if you would just listen, be quiet for a minute. I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to God. And so he starts talking to God and he says, only grant me two things, God. Then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call and I will answer or let me speak and you reply to me. See, see, Job is, is terrified. He is, he's trying to make sense of the world because it's not calculating correctly anymore, and this understanding of God is getting rocked. The way in which he understands God, God has been in his box, and he just jumped out of it, and he's saying, I, I don't understand anymore. And I think it's really natural for us and normal for us in life to like things to kind of just fit into our little boxes, Right? We, we like this. We, we like people, for example, to fit into our nice little boxes about them. We, we, we want to be close friends with people who are tame, people who act the way we expect them to act, right? If someone kind of, you never know how they're going to act, you kind of cringe and squirm when you're around them, correct? Yeah? If, if not, maybe you are that person, I don't know. But we want people to fit into our boxes. It makes us uncomfortable. In the same way, we like our world to fit into our box. We want our world to make sense to us. We want our God to make sense to us. And we especially want God to behave the way that we want him to behave. And so I think we can resonate with Job when he describes God in, in verses 13 through 25 of chapter 12. He describes God in this very true yet terrifying and dangerous way. He kind of goes on this rant here. And he's like, who can control God? He's God. I mean, no one can sneak around him. No one can manipulate God. No one can trick God. God does what God wants to do. God has just jumped out of Job's box and he is absolutely terrified. Job's new system in life, since God has jumped out of his box, is that basically he has no system. All he has is now God. 
That's his only hope. So Job shows us, not just in the midst of suffering, but honestly in the midst of everyday life, that our hope is never in a system. Our only hope is actually in a person. It's in the person of God. See, what Job needs in his suffering isn't the criticism of his friends. It's the presence of his God. That's what Job needs. So Job describes God in this terrifying way, and he says, you know what? I got no other shot. I have no other chances. I have no other options. I need you guys to be quiet because I'm going to take my case to God. I'm going to approach this dangerous God who just jumped outside of my box. I have nowhere else to go. I must go to God. Nothing else makes sense. He's the only one who can vindicate me. He's the only one I could count on. He's the only one who even could come through. He's saying God is dangerously sovereign and outside of his little box that he just put him in. He's like, but I must go to him because he's all I have. He's my only hope. Corey Tenboom was a, a woman who suffered greatly in World War II. And she once famously said, you, you never learn that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all that you have. She says, I, I mean, I could say that to you right now and you could go, yep. But she's saying you never really know that he's all that you really do need until he is all that you really do have. See, Job knows that God is all that he has, and so Job utters the famous phrase in verse 15 of chapter 13, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Why would Job say that? Why would Job say that? Well, just stay with me for a minute and look at what happens next. Because he actually goes to God. We know that Job all along has admitted his innocence. He's, he's done that in, in these four chapters at least twice. He's done that many times before this, that there's nothing he's done that's brought this upon his life. And he goes and he asks God for two things, in verse, starting in verse 20, but then he turns in verse 23. And as he's approaching this God who jumped out of his box, this holy and other and beautiful and beyond him God, he's overcome with what? The reality of his sin. He says, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. He's just sort of piling up for dramatic effect almost, iniquities, sins, transgressions, sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is, a moth, that is moth eaten. He is, in this prayer, both asking God to reveal to him anything that he has done that could have caused this in his life. And simultaneously, he's grieving just over the presence of his sin in general. He's, he's realizing how amazing and holy and other God is, and he's realizing how much he does not deserve a chance to approach this God. But he's doing more than that, though. He's actually mourning and grieving over just the reality of sin in the world in general because in, in chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, he begins to talk about people in general and the reality of their sin in the world. So it's his sin that is further driving him to despair. He's realizing that although he has no reason to believe that he did something to bring his suffering upon himself, he's believing that sin is the reason why suffering even exists. He's realizing that all this suffering problem is, is really as a result of this sin problem. And so he's spiraling into despair, but then something happens. Verse 7, something changes. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease, though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil. Yet at the scent of water, it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last. And where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, which again is the place of the dead that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, 
shall he live again? He, he talks about this tree. It's really interesting. And he says, you know what? If you chop down a tree and its roots still in the ground, and he's like, even at the scent of water, it'll come back to life. It'll rise again. It'll bud again. It'll create fruit again. And then he goes on. He's like, but that doesn't happen to people. And then he gets to this great question in verse 14. I just read it. He says, if a man dies, shall he live again? He's basically saying, could a man be raised like that tree? If that tree can come back to life, could, could it be that a person could? Can it be, God, that, that you could lay me in the ground and I could serve you in death? That's what he continues on. He says, all the days of my service I would wait, referring to being in death, till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands, for then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. He said, God, you could lay me in the ground and I could serve you in death like doing prison time basically is what he's saying, and then you could deal with my sin fully and finally, and you could cause me to rise again and vindicate me? You see, Job longs for his paradise to be restored. But, but it's not that he wants his things back. It's not even so much that he wants his kids back, although I'm sure that he does. What Job wants is his God back. That's what he wants. See, he had experienced intimacy with God, and now when everything falls apart, he feels like he can't find God, that God had abandoned him. So he says, God, just deal fully and finally with my sin, because I want you to return to me. Job somehow, and in some crazy way, he realizes the systems are broken. He says, my only hope in my suffering is going to God, but not just any God, the God of renewal, the God of resurrection. And to further lay out his point in, in verses 18 through 22, he moves on by somberly ending and saying that if there is no hope for resurrection, then there's just no hope in life and we should all just die. Well, if you read the story, God doesn't put Job in the ground and deal with his sin there. But uh, centuries later, God would put the one who created everything, everything that was beautiful and perfect, he would put his son, Jesus, he would put the Messiah, the sent one, He'd put the one who was to come and to redeem the world. He would put him in the ground, and God wouldn't deal with Jesus' sin there. No, because he had no sin. He would deal with Job's sin there. He would deal with your sin there, and he would deal with my sin there. See, just like Job's friends accused him, it wasn't Job's sin that brought Job's suffering. In the same way, it wasn't Jesus' sin that brought Jesus' suffering upon him. Just like Job was mourning the reality of his sin and really just the sin in the entire world as being the cause of tremendous suffering, it was the sins of mankind. It was the friend's sin. It was Job's sin. It was your sin. It was my sin that would bring upon Jesus the darkest and worst suffering from the hand of God that was ever experienced. So now when you're slain, when you are chopped down like a tree, when you are put in the ground, your roots are no longer attached to your own performance. They're no longer attached to a place of death. Your roots can be attached to Jesus who is actually the true vine. And when there's not just a scent of water in the air, but the scent of the words of God that Jesus has returned to make all things new, you will rise and you will come out of the grave too, just like Jesus did. Can the righteous suffer? Job's friends say no, but the gospel says yes. Can a man live again? Well, when the eyes of our heart wander and stare at an empty tomb where Jesus once laid, the answer is emphatically yes. You see, Job doesn't get an answer from God right away. He doesn't get an answer until chapter 38. There, there are many dark nights ahead of Job, 
And even when he gets an answer, he doesn't get answers to questions that he's even asking. But God will answer Job. And God will answer us. And he's already begun to answer us, I think, in the most profound way. And that's through the cross of Jesus. Let me tell you, if you want to be a really good friend to someone who's suffering, just take them to the cross. Because every act of suffering was either a precursor to the cross or it's been an echo of the cross. See, there Jesus took Job's suffering and there Jesus took your suffering and he made it his suffering. So, so often I think we try to make sense of our suffering by looking backwards and looking for what caused it or looking for some connection or looking for someone to blame. That's what Job's friends have been doing. But when we do that, all we do is we walk away and we're just scratching our heads. But honestly, when you go to God, when you do that and, and you look to God and he finally answers you, he doesn't answer you by pointing back towards something. But he, he answers you by pointing you forward, not to the cause of suffering, but to the result of suffering. That's what God does to us. That's where he helps us make the most sense of it. Not by figuring out who we should blame or who did it, but by figuring out who we should hope in. Not just what we should hope in, but who we should hope in. Paul, who was a man who was radically changed by Jesus, once said in 2 Corinthians, though our outer nature is wasting away, referring to the suffering he was going through, he says our inner nature is being renewed day by day. He says, for this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's hard to imagine what Job experienced as slight and momentary. And I know there's a lot of times in things that we're going through, it's hard to imagine it being slight and momentary. But when you see it with the perspective of what is to come, it begins to feel that way. Can the righteous suffer? Well, in Job, the answer is yes. The system broke down. In Joseph, in the book of Genesis, the answer is yes. When Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, in the book of Exodus, the answer is yes. When you look at King David, the answer is yes. When you look at the prophet Jeremiah, the answer is yes. When you look at the prophet Ezekiel, the answer is yes. When you look at the prophet of Daniel, the answer is yes. When you look at John the Baptist, the answer is yes. When you look at Peter and Paul and all the people who follow Jesus, the answer is yes. And when you look at Jesus, the answer is emphatically yes. Do you see, this is important, do you see that it's actually, it's, it's precisely that the righteous suffer and that we know that it shouldn't be that way. It's precisely that the righteous suffer and that we know it shouldn't be that way. That we know there is another world that is yet to come. Because it shouldn't be that way. How can we be sure this future is for us? Well, the answer is you, you can be sure if you believe in Jesus who, who took what we deserve so that we could have the heaven and the glory that he did. Uh, there was a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse. It's quite a name. And he was a pastor at a church called 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. It's a lot of Presbyterian churches. And uh, he lost his wife in death by tragedy. And when that happened, he had one daughter who was still just a very little girl. So now this man is left with him and his little daughter to try to process and make sense of this. And I just try to imagine that. I mean, I have a daughter, very young, what that would be like, what you would go through. And he's trying to help her process this. He's trying to process this. And once they were driving down the street and there was this really huge van that drove by and the shadow of the van just, just covered their vehicle for a moment. And this guy had this thought. He said something like this to his daughter. Would you rather be run over by a truck or by its shadow? His daughter replied, by the shadow, of course, that can't hurt us at all. 
Donald replied, right. If the truck doesn't hit you, but only its shadow, then you are fine. Well, it was only the shadow of death that went over your mother. She's actually alive, and she's more alive than we are. And that's because 2,000 years ago, the real truck of death hit Jesus, and because death hit Jesus, and we now believe in him, now the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death. And that shadow of death is but my entrance into glory. You see, no matter what kind of suffering comes our way, we can face it. Because although it is very real, it is just a shadow of what Jesus experienced. And now we know while we face it that we look ahead. We don't look back trying to blame something or someone. We, we don't hope in a broken system anymore. Not just even looking forward even to a world that is to come. But we hope in our God who resurrects and who will be with us. It's true, you never know that Jesus is all you need until he is all you have. So tonight, if you feel like you need Jesus, you can have Jesus. And you will experience that, that he is really all that you need. You can have hope in your suffering. God, I do want to um, ask tonight that, that our hearts would somehow see you for how uh, just beyond us in, in magnificent and amazing you are and how close and intimate you are all at the same time. God, I know that in the midst of things I, I suffer through or other people suffer through, God, I, it's very disorienting and things just kind of break down and I'm sure there's people tonight who feel that way. And so, God, I, I pray that um, you would cause each one of us, in a very honest and genuine way, just to come to you and, and realize you are our hope. No matter what comes our way, God, you are our hope. We thank you, God, that you will return and you will make all things new.